0: Hey, y'all. This is Donna from The Broken Podcast, which will be debuting in January of 2020. You're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital chick Network. Hope you're doing well, dreamers. Kisses, love. California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. You know there is a little bit more to making a podcast than just talking into a mic and hitting publish. You need more than that. And I'm talking about a reliable hosting service so your time can be spent working on your show. You also want accurate download numbers. You want to see the audience that you're reaching. And you're going to want a web page that is simple and easy to work with. That's why I choose Blueberry. With its simple media hosting and fully integrated WordPress website, it can't get any easier. So if you host a show or if you're thinking about starting one, Visit www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to give Blueberry a try for a month for free. Blueberry's support team will be right there every step of the way to help you migrate over so you won't lose any of your subscribers in the process. And if you're brand new to this, they can get your new show up and running. And with a month for free to try it out using promo code DREAM, what have you got to lose? There are a number of ways that you can support California Dreaming. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can spread the word about the show. You can recommend us in podcast and true crime fan groups. And you can leave the show a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on. And if you would like to go a little above and beyond, you can also support the show on our Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can gain access to one exclusive episode per month, and there are currently more than two dozen episodes that you can binge, so it's a pretty good deal for just a dollar. This week, I am still catching up, so I would like to thank Ann B., Michael M., Czar, Kelly L., Jennifer S., Kate P., Christine H., Hannah, Ivan S., Christina, Michael S., Michael H., and Mona P. for joining Patreon. I'd like to thank Amy for raising her pledge to the next level, and I'd also like to thank Diane C. for making a donation through our PayPal. And if you aren't interested in a monthly obligation, you can help with a one-time donation through the PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Every little bit helps in keeping us going and keeping us ad-free, so thank you. Before we get started, I'd like to say that I realize that we have been talking about the murders of some children and young people lately. The last six-part series on Zachary Turner was one, though I was looking to examine the reasons why the system failed him. In the two March Patreon bonuses, both stories involve the murders of teenage girls, which I didn't even exactly realize at the time that I had done that. And today we're going to talk about another child who we've discussed on social media while I was working on the Zachary episodes. Parallels were being made in terms of the failures in the social services system between Zachary's case and the case that we're going to talk about today. But I want to note a couple of things before we start. I will be moving away from stories involving children after this. That being said, I do want to make it clear that the purpose of today's story is hopefully going to be more of an examination of the series of oversights and failures that led to how this story unfolded. I will provide you with a warning that this episode will contain some details involving child abuse and the murder of a young child, and may be disturbing for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. On February 26, 2020, Netflix released a documentary entitled The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez. The case is absolutely one of the most horrific incidents of child abuse that we've heard about in recent memory. If you watch the documentary, then you know how much Gabriel suffered at the hands of his own mother and her boyfriend. If you didn't watch it, then you likely avoided it because of the abuse that you know Gabriel endured at the hands of the people who were supposed to love and care for him. You knew it would be more than you could bear to watch. You knew it would shatter your heart into a million pieces. You knew you would cry. You knew you would become infuriated. If you did watch it, and if you're like me, then you had to work up to it. You steeled yourself for it. You mentally and emotionally prepared for it. And in my own personal case, I desperately needed something to take my mind off some things that I was going through towards the end of February. And boy, this documentary did the job and then some. The system has failed in plenty of cases that we've listened to podcasts on or watched documentaries about. Those are the stories that resonate with us. The ones that make us take notice the ones that make us feel compelled that we have to say or do something, no matter how big or small, to acknowledge the injustice that we are witnessing and experiencing. We collectively stood up last fall and advocated for a stay of execution in the case of Rodney Reed, convicted of the murder of Stacy Stites, a murder of which there is overwhelming evidence that he did not commit. We joined his army in social media. We listened to podcasts about why we needed to pay attention to what was going on in Texas. We put our names down on the petition to halt his execution. Some of us even called up the governor directly to tell him, or at least his office, that he needed to step in. Otherwise, he might very well have Rodney's blood on his hands. And it worked. The governor stayed Rodney's execution, and he lived to continue to fight for his innocence. Not everybody agreed that Rodney was innocent. There are many people who do believe he's guilty of Stacy's murder. But even some of those who believe in his guilt felt that there was reason enough to not put him to death. Because it is literally the one thing that can't be undone to a condemned person. So the state, if they have the death penalty on the books, better have it right if they're going to go through with carrying out a death sentence. The system failed so badly in the case that we're going to discuss today, so much so it's been one of the few times I've been ashamed that something like this could happen in my own home state, in the very county where I lived most of my life. I'm going to try my best to stay away from the details of what actually happened to Gabriel Fernandez, though we may go over some of them. I will keep it to a minimum because it really isn't my focus. I don't think we need to go too much into what those two disgusting monsters did to him. But what I do want to talk about is similar to what we did in the case of Zachary Turner, although it won't be as in-depth. But there is a good amount of information out there as to every single person, agency, and entity that failed Gabriel. Zachary's story that we covered at the end of February and into March coincided with Many of the conversations that were started about Gabriel after we watched the documentary and started turning to social media with our thoughts and opinions. By now, most of us know what happened, but I want to talk about why. In this 142nd episode of California Dreaming, the tale of why Gabriel Fernandez died. let me just start off by saying for the life of me, I don't know how many more signs anybody who ever encountered Gabriel Fernandez needed to see to know that this eight-year-old child was being severely abused. I worked as a preschool teacher for nearly 10 years. I'd see the same children every single day. I could look at their faces, at their eyes. I could see if they weren't feeling well. I saw if they had a scraped knee or a bump here or there from typical kids playing and falling type of things. I looked at their little arms and their little hands. I looked at their bodies when I changed their diapers. I'd potty train them. And fortunately, I never encountered a time where I thought a child was being abused. So I can't understand how and why Gabriel's injuries, which were so prominent, didn't cause someone to intervene and follow through on that intervention. There are even pictures of him with injuries from regular school projects, pictures taken by his teacher for those projects, where the abuse was crystal clear. Now, granted, there were people who tried. There were people who tried to seek help for Gabriel, but the people who needed to step in didn't. And that's what we're going to talk about today. This abuse went on for the better part of about eight months, pretty much the entire time that Gabriel was in the care of his mother, who, as you know, took him in for the first time since she gave birth to him and left him there at the hospital because she didn't want him. But suddenly she changed her mind because she wanted the government benefits that came along with having custody of Gabriel. I don't know what all that included. It could have been money. It could have been food stamps, perhaps both but that's what she wanted when she took back custody of him from his other family members that had been raising him. And part of the reason all of this was done or the reasons that were given were because of accusations that Gabriel was being abused by his caregivers at first, who were a gay couple that were relatives of his and his mom's. And it's been said that pretty much the catalyst for all the abuse by his mom and her boyfriend was that they were angry all the time, because they thought Gabriel was gay. Which to me sounds like an excuse that his parents would be ignorant enough to think that people would accept that this was somehow justified or even a way to justify what they were doing in their own minds. But that was literally the best that they could come up with. I mean, what else could they possibly say to explain the horrifying abuse that they subjected him to? Nothing. There's nothing that they could have said. Not even if they had some suspicion that Gabriel was gay. There simply is no justification in the world for what happened. Much of the following information was retrieved from a 2018 investigative article in The Atlantic entitled, Why Did Gabriel Have to Die? By Garrett Therolf. In the county of Los Angeles, at a rate of a minimum of at least two children each month, either is killed or nearly killed by the person or persons that they are in the care of, whether it be their biological parent or an appointed guardian. At a minimum, Dreamers, in Los Angeles County alone. And those are only the cases that are reported to the Department of Children and Family Services or the DCFS and subsequently investigated. And that investigation gets handed over to DCFS representatives. And from what I read, It kind of feels like each child's death or near death gets processed through as if their life was on some sort of assembly line. It's an endless stream of paperwork whose pages are filled with instances of unimaginable abuse, torture, and neglect that coldly makes its way through the standard wrote once over whomever the case is assigned to. And the chances are that whoever this person is looking at any one of those children's death file has been there, has done that, has seen it all. And I can almost guarantee that this DCFS worker is overloaded, overwhelmed, underpaid, and after a seemingly endless stream of files filled with sad, heartbreaking stories, could have quite possibly become completely desensitized, completely numb to the things that would shock and horrify the average person. The Los Angeles County DCFS worker is not the average person, however, at least not the ones whose desk Gabriel Fernandez's case landed on. And apparently it landed on several desks for one reason or another and was overlooked every single time. One of the worst cases of child abuse many of us have ever come to know, and nobody that could have or should have helped, even batted an eyelash. And even now, at a minimum of at least twice a month, another case like Gabriel's lands on somebody's desk in this department. And most, if not all of these cases, are initiated by one thing, a phone call from the hospital at which the dead or almost dead child was transported to. After the parents or guardians realize that they've gone too far and they have no choice but to call 911, after they've come up with A cover story to explain why their child came to be that way. And by that way, I mean battered, bloodied, injured, unresponsive, dying, or dead. Paramedics and police arrive. They try to sell their story to them. In the meantime, the child is taken by ambulance, rushed to the hospital to do everything humanly possible to prevent their little bodies from giving up and giving in to the damage inflicted upon them by their very own parents, by their very own caregivers. So what does the DCFS do when they receive a call reporting abuse? Because at a minimum of at least twice a month, the worst case scenario happens. Does it become kind of routine? They've got another beat-up kid, another investigation to deal with. They've got to go do that job. They have to head over to the family home. Are there other children there? Does the abused child have brothers and sisters? Because if there are any, they need to be talked to right away. And it's possible that they need to be removed from that environment. Then the DCFS worker would write up their report on the case along with some recommendations for a remedy to prevent future incidents such as this from occurring within this family again. And that's the very minimum of what they need to do in order to basically cover their own butts. They investigated, they wrote it up, they gave their suggestions to avoid a similar event occurring in the future, and the DCFS worker is able to say but they did what was required of them. Is this how social workers typically operate? I hope not, but the investigation into Gabriel's case revealed that this was exactly how his file was handled. But it would be the grounds upon which the caseworkers involved in his story would base their defense of their actions. We did what was required of us in the capacity of our job, period. And sadly, they were apparently not wrong. They did all that they were really required and obligated to do for Gabriel. And they were okay with that, at least at the time. How they feel about it now, from what I've heard them say, they feel like they did their job and there was nothing they could do. Even though he died, they did all that they needed to. Even though children died before Gabriel, and children continue to die since Gabriel, these DCFS workers are at peace with what happened. Are they losing sleep over it? I don't know. They may have been when they were faced with the very real possibility of being held criminally responsible for what happened to Gabriel. That, I'm sure, had them all pretty shook the prospect of being held accountable for the murder of a child that really had only been a name and a case number on a file folder to them. We know that ultimately the charges were dismissed, and that's because they did what was required of them at their job. The file on Gabriel Fernandez made yet another stop at the desk of a DCFS caseworker named Greg Merritt. At the age of 62, he was probably inching ever so close to retirement, having been working for the agency for more than 20 years. His supervisor was also his wife, Bonnie Merritt. Bonnie was regarded as one of the most dedicated employees around, and to anybody who knew Greg would say that he took a great deal of pride in his role as a caseworker with the DCFS. He kind of looked at the job as his purpose. Dedicated to Christianity? This was his calling, working closely with troubled families to help maintain unity and preservation. Families who, for one reason or another, ended up in the system. They were at risk of losing their children. They were vulnerable families. It was his job to advocate and support those by way of intervention and counseling. But not everybody at this particular DCFS office, which is located in the city of Palmdale, California, felt the same way. As a matter of fact, it was quite the opposite. According to the article in The Atlantic, many of those who worked side-by-side with Greg in his office carried with them so much shame when it came to the nature and effectiveness, or ineffectiveness as it were, of their roles there as caseworkers, because their department had garnered such a notoriously atrocious standing when it came to their track record in working with at-risk families and youth, that it had been reported that many of them from that particular office, kept their jobs a secret from anyone who would ask. That's how bad things were. Their own friends and family were kept in the dark because they were ashamed of the work that they did or didn't do. You know what that has me believing, dreamers? That most, if not all, the people that clocked in and out of that Palmdale branch of the DCFS were there just to go through the motions. Day in and day out, Earn that salary, pay those bills. That's it. I do want to say that every time we come across a case where social workers get dragged for being part of a failed system, I always have listeners who staunchly defend those who work in the field. So please don't take this as an hour long bashing of people who have made a career out of working with families and children in this capacity. That is not my intention. As it is clear that these people are not well paid considering the type of work that they do, And they almost always have a caseload that far exceeds what they are capable of or should be handling. Not to mention, it's an emotionally draining job. But for purposes of this case, we are only going to be discussing the people involved in Gabriel's case. And the branch that was responsible for the area that he resided in. And what has been revealed about this specific office following Gabriel's murder and the subsequent investigation. So on that day, it was May 23rd, 2013. It was a Thursday. It was a day after 911 was summoned to the home of Pearl Fernandez and Asaro Agari, where Pearl's eight-year-old son had been found battered and unresponsive the day before on Wednesday the 22nd. Assistant Regional Administrator with the DCFS, a woman named Barbara Dallas, made her way over to Greg's cubicle. She needed a file. Gabriel Fernandez's. Greg began rummaging through his stack of papers, and as he did, the name Gabriel Fernandez did not mean anything to him. It was just another name on a file buried somewhere on his desk, along with a seemingly endless stack of other case files he is in charge of. And he really didn't even ask what the file was needed for. He just started searching for it. He had no idea why and didn't really seem bothered enough to ask why his supervisor needed this particular file. And the pile he was looking through was actually his pile of closed cases. Which is a detail of the story that many of us are going to find completely unbelievable. Because if you know what happened, if you've seen the documentary... I'm sure the question that comes to mind immediately is if Gabriel's case was officially closed then what exactly does it take for a child to go through for his or her case to remain on a caseworker's active roster? Eventually, Barbara explained why she was looking for Gabriel's folder. She told Greg that he had suffered a beating and he had been brutally abused over a sustained period of time and it was looking like he wasn't going to pull through. Greg eventually found Gabriel's file in his collection of cold cases, and as Barbara walked away to do whatever it was she was going to do with it, Greg said that he quietly prayed for Gabriel, and then he carried on with his day, back to looking at his computer screen that had been staring back at him for 20 years, back to plucking away at his keyboard, back to whatever work he had before him for that day because that's what Greg Merritt does he would say that he had stuff he needed to do whatever peril Gabriel's life was in in that moment couldn't get in the way of that Greg's mantra maybe his way of dealing his way of coping his way of getting to clock out time every day is keeping in mind of the fact that life goes on Greg came to that realization pretty early on in his career with the DCFS that there were going to be children in the community that his department was tasked with advocating for. And we know that many of these children, their lives and safety depend on people like Greg. Well, Greg had long resigned himself to the fact that no matter what he did, no matter how hard he tried, children were going to be abused, they were going to be hurt, and sometimes they were going to be killed. And that it was beyond humanly possible to save them all from the inescapable. That is something that is preordained within the family dynamics of some children. Their caregivers are going to abuse them. They are going to be neglected. And in the worst case scenario, they're going to die. And there is no way, no one agency, no one person, or no group of persons that can stop it from happening. So back to his computer... Back to his keyboard, back to the next case, and then the next, and then the next. Greg was at peace with the conclusion he'd come to, and what's more, it bothered him that his bosses and the community have taken it upon themselves to place the responsibility on his shoulders to make miracles happen in the lives of these children. This was the man in charge of Gabriel's case at the time that he was murdered. Or, if I want to put it bluntly, was the time that finally came when Gabriel, after months of severe and ongoing abuse at the hands of his mother and her boyfriend, that his little body could take no more. And it breaks my heart into a million pieces that Gabriel is no longer in this world. And it was a world that he agonized so much in through so much cruelty and brutality. But I'd be lying to you if I told you that there wasn't a little tiny part of me that's relieved that he's not suffering anymore. And I'll admit it, I'm not the most religious person in the world, but if ever there was a child that I hope is somewhere else being embraced with love and care and happiness, free of all this sadness and hurt, it's him, wherever that place is. So I want to ask you guys, how do you feel about Greg Merritt's conclusion? Parents, guardians, caregivers. there are going to be those out there who are abusers. There's no getting around that. Children are going to get hurt and some are going to die. And it's just the way the world is. And there's nothing that anyone can do to stop it. Is there a measure of truth in that? Is it true that we can't save them all? Gabriel isn't the first child to be abused to death he hasn't been the last it's always been a thing and it always will be a thing are we as a society powerless to put a stop to it that may very well be the current state of affairs with the way the system is operating but is reform possible what's it going to take do we have the resources for it I don't think it's impossible no I don't think that at all, but I do think it is more complicated than simply reforming the DCFS. I do agree that the problem begins at home, with the abusers, correct? If not for the use of this severe form of discipline, using corporal punishment and sometimes torture, sometimes neglect, we wouldn't even need a Department of Children and Family Services to intervene, We seem to have this tendency as a society to look towards punishing abusers rather than taking action to prevent the abuse from happening in the first place. That is what the DCFS is for, isn't it? The department receives a report of abuse of a child. They step in and theoretically they are supposed to counsel the family in working towards dealing with their children in ways that don't involve physical abuse. There are home visits. They are educated in nonviolent discipline techniques. They are counseled on things such as parenting, dealing with anger, whatever other issues the families may be facing that might be triggering this abuse. Whether the abuser is a survivor of their own childhood abuse, or if there are drug and alcohol issues, if there are financial issues, Or perhaps there's other domestic violence events happening in the home between the parents or couples. It can often be quite complicated working through the problems the family of an abused child is attempting to cope with. But from what we're being told by Greg Merritt himself, the job is impossible and it's foolish to expect the impossible to happen. Is he correct? it's pretty scary to think that the vulnerable at risk children in our communities are dependent on that philosophy. What we're telling them is your mom and dad are going to abuse you. We know about it, but there's only so much we can do to help. The police will step in when this rises to a level of criminality. And yeah, that's all we've got. And I don't necessarily think that Greg is wrong. Because the fact remains that Gabriel wouldn't be dead if he was. You can't help them all. You can't make the impossible happen. And as long as the people working for the DCFS are underpaid, understaffed, and overloaded on cases, how can we expect it to be any other way? It is, in fact, impossible the way things are. I read in multiple online news sources that when it comes to the state of California, the area where Gabriel resided in in the San Fernando Valley is apparently one of the worst areas to work in for the department. They say that they are just completely overflowing with cases and I believe that. And since Gabriel's death, there have been at least two other boys who have died as a result of abuse under their watch. And I'll tell you about them a little bit later. Now, if you watched the trials of Gabriel Fernandez on Netflix and you listen to the ER nurse in the opening segments go through the plethora of injuries that she witnessed on Gabriel's body, it is not something the average person sees every day. And from the emotional reaction of that nurse, it did not seem like a thing she's even seen very often. And if I remember right, she remarked that Gabriel stands out as one of the most extreme cases she'd ever seen. But if it's not something that the average person or even the average emergency room nurse sees, is it something that the average DCFS worker sees? Is the abuse that Gabriel suffered considered standard, run-of-the-mill, everyday child abuse to a social worker? Is there nothing about the severity, the frequency, and the numbers of injuries Gabriel had endured that raised red flags to the point that his case was signed off as closed? Or was it a situation where the DCFS workers involved in this case simply didn't see it? Were the excuses that Gabriel gave, or the explanation that his parents came up with, believable enough to write all those injuries off as childhood accidents or mishaps? maybe the injuries weren't as severe as they were the day that gabriel was brought into the hospital two days before he died i mean you can't be concerned about injuries you can't see or have innocent explanations for right it's hard to imagine that the level of concern was never really raised enough for gabriel and his siblings to have been removed from the home and then there's the siblings i was under the impression that they weren't abused and if they were it was not nearly as much possibly even not at all, maybe Gabriel's caseworker figured he must be a clumsy, accident-prone kid because his siblings didn't ever have any marks on them. That could be a lesson learned, one of many here in this situation. A child could be a specific target of abuse. Just because all the children aren't being abused doesn't mean one of them isn't. Pearl and Asario had taken issue with what they perceived to be Gabriel's burgeoning homosexuality. I don't know how much truth there is behind that. As I said earlier, that's just their claim. They were attempting to beat him straight. Is that what they were doing? Because obviously, they're not going to target the other children for abuse if they're not being perceived as being gay or becoming gay or whatever stupid, ignorant thing that they were thinking Anyway, getting back to Greg Merritt. I'm not trying to make any excuses for the guy. Because according to the article in The Atlantic, he was bogged down with more than 180 case files at the time of Gabriel's death. He could barely even recall any details of Gabriel's situation when Barbara Dallas approached his cubicle that day asking for his file. The only thing he knew off the top of his head was Gabriel was school-aged. So what does that mean for Gabriel? Well, it means he's not exactly on Greg's priority radar. And the reason for that is because Gabriel went to school. And that means his teacher sees him. And if she sees something, by law, she's required to say something. Which, as we know, she did. She and at least one security guard who worked at a social services office where Pearl came in with Gabriel... At least the two of them reported or attempted to report that Gabriel appeared to be a victim of abuse. And the security guard, I believe, said in the documentary that at the time it was late in the day and nobody wanted to stay overtime to deal with it. I can't recall if they said that they were not allowed to be on overtime because that can happen too. places of employment have come down on their hourly wage earners to keep overtime to a minimum. You would think that when it came to working with the public, working with families and children, especially families who are in need of government assistance and the Department of Social Services, when something like this happens or something like this comes up, then policies just go out the window. Let's take care of these children. But it didn't happen and it was yet another crack in the system that Gabriel slipped through. So in general, if a child is in school So after the age of five, when they are with the teacher outside the home, social workers assigned to their cases become much less concerned about them as opposed to the children who aren't in school or preschool, which of course preschool isn't mandatory, and children who aren't necessarily seen by anybody other than the people they reside with. They have little to no interaction with the public. Those are the ones that the DCFS are most concerned with, when an abuse case is active and being investigated. Statistically speaking, children under the age of three make up the majority of those who are killed by their parents, guardians, or caregivers. Once Greg was made aware of what was going on with Gabriel, he clicked around on his files in his computer to refresh his memory as to the notations he had made about Gabriel and his history. And one of the first things he noticed, lo and behold... Gabriel's teacher had contacted DCFS and made a report, and that case was assigned to one of the social workers working under Greg's supervision, a woman named Stephanie Rodriguez. At the time, she was 34 years old, so nearly 30 years younger than the veteran supervisor. Ultimately, he would be the one with all the experience, the one in charge, the one that would oversee everything Stephanie would or wouldn't do. Now, Gabriel was in the first grade, and he was 8 years old. His birthday was February 21st, 2005. So because he was born early in the year, he'd be older than a lot of his classmates. But typically, children turn 6 in the first grade. Not always, but that's typical. I say not always because, you know, my birthday is in the beginning of December. When I started kindergarten, the year I was turning 5, I actually started school at the age of four. When I graduated high school, I was 17. When I started first grade, I was five, going on six at the end of that year. Gabriel was about to finish first grade when he died that May. That means he was two years behind, which to me should have been another red flag. It's one thing to be a year behind, but to be two years behind, that's troubling. We know this to be a fact because Gabriel was only in the care of his mom and her boyfriend for eight months, counting back that would have placed him in their home pretty much at the beginning of the 2012-2013 school year. His first grade teacher would have been the only teacher he had during this time living with his mother. She was the one making regular calls and reports to the DCFS and to Stephanie Rodriguez about the abuse that she was seeing and hearing about. And as Greg stared at the words on his computer screen, as he looked and read and took it all in, it began sinking in that the reports Stephanie had taken were, at a very minimum, unsettling. But dreamers, I'd say they were downright frightening. But again, this is coming from me, and I'm someone who does not look at reports about young children like this on a daily basis. Perhaps at the time when these reports are written, the author of these reports is just simply so desensitized to what they're actually inputting into their computer that the gravity of what they are making a record of simply doesn't strike them the same way. In this report, he saw that Stephanie had noted that Gabriel himself was the author of suicide notes. Not a singular note, multiple notes. But as I said in the moment that Greg was reading this, it really wasn't anything particularly troubling to him, this whole writing of suicide notes. In the course of his career, Greg has seen children even younger than the age of eight not simply writing about suicide, but actually attempting to carry out suicide. To Greg, this was neither here nor there for him. He's seen worse. Also, in Gabriel's file, it was recorded that the dedicated computer program that the DCFS uses to place children on a scoring system that measures the probability that they are being abused was used to assign Gabriel a score. Based on whatever algorithm the program used, it indicated that Gabriel scored in the range of being at a very high risk of being abused. But again, to Greg, not a big deal. He's seen the high-risk score assigned to many, many children. Gabriel's score was hardly unique to him. But even with these things noted in Gabriel's file, when Greg got to the very end, he noticed that the last thing there in the computer was a specific request filed asking for Gabriel's case to be officially closed, which Greg Merritt approved with his own signature. And that happened just a month before Gabriel's murder. So let that sink in. Less than a month before Pearl Fernandez and Asaro Aguirre murdered Gabriel, Greg Merritt signed off that everything that had been reported to the DCFS did not raise any red flags or alarm bells, he did not find anything concerning enough to keep Gabriel's file active, and he officially closed it. With that, Greg Merritt effectively washed his hands and the department's hands of Gabriel Fernandez and his life. I honestly could not imagine what Greg Merritt was thinking or feeling as this began to sink in. A child who he satisfactorily determined was secure and safe in his home was in a hospital bed now, in a coma, and probably not going to come out of it. How in the world was Gabriel's file signed off by this man? A 20-year veteran supervisor with the DCFS with everything he had to have read and reviewed before closing it? Well, Dreamers, the answer is simple. Greg Merritt was required to read Gabriel's entire file once a request to close it is made. But he didn't. He signed it without reviewing its contents. But we have to ask ourselves, even if Greg did read it, Would he have taken any action or would he have closed it anyway? One less kid, one less case file cluttering up his desk, right? Honestly, it's likely that when Greg received a request to close a case, it's probably like a big, huge relief. He's a supervisor, but this request came to him from a colleague, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. And perhaps Greg simply figured that his colleague would have used his or her better judgment, and just signed them off as they came across his desk, trusting their assessment. Are you kind of picturing these files being on like some sort of dreadful conveyor belt passing through this system of disjointed DCFS bureaucracy? I got that vibe in reading about the way Gabriel's file made its way through Greg's office. It's almost as if it's become lost on everyone that Gabriel and... All the other children are more than just a stack of papers. They're human beings, and they need help. What if, in place of being enclosed in a blank manila folder stuffed with papers nobody wants to read, all the pictures ever taken of a child documenting the abuse, all the evidence of the cuts and bumps and bruises, images of their bloodied and broken bodies were attached To the covers of those folders instead. Would the decision to shuffle off a case to the closed pile be taken more seriously? Who knows, right? I don't know. Words are really powerful to me, to almost all of us listening, otherwise, we wouldn't find ourselves enthralled by podcasts. I did not need to see the images of Gabriel to understand the magnitude of the abuse that he suffered. If Gabriel's case had struck anyone as deeply troubling, which it should have, his living situation at home should have been investigated much further. What they knew was enough, and it should have triggered a deep dive into Pearl Fernandez and Asaro Aguirre. If they had, they would have been able to see what we eventually saw in that documentary. How Gabriel was gagged with a sock to silence him, bound at the wrists and ankles to restrain him bandanas over his face to blind him, relegated to a cabinet to imprison him. That was how Gabriel lived the last eight months of his life. But the DCFS didn't. The file was closed on the silenced, restrained, blinded, imprisoned, neglected, and abused little boy. Abused in so many unimaginable ways. And I mean in ways that terrorists would torture a captive. That's what his parents were to me, terrorists. The file was closed on Gabriel, and with that, his fate was sealed. As a result of this, supervisors Greg Merritt and Kevin Baum, along with their colleagues, Stephanie Rodriguez and Patricia Clement, were indicted on charges related to Gabriel's murder, including child abuse and falsifying records. They were looking at as much as a decade in prison, And this was clearly an attempt at shining a light on the fact that the abuse and suffering that ultimately led to Gabriel's death was repeatedly ignored by the DCFS and those representing the department, whose sole purpose it was to advocate for and protect children just like Gabriel from terrorists just like his parents. It was a thing prosecutors viewed as an utterly astounding collapse of the system at their level, and these four people were responsible for that. This was their duty, and they failed. So to prosecutors, the only way to ensure that this does not ever happen again was for these four individuals to be held criminally responsible for Gabriel's death. We do know that the charges were ultimately dropped earlier this year. And the short story is is that their actions did not satisfy the definition of the crimes. In other words, they did not fail to do their jobs as required that rose to the level of criminality. Did they fail to do their jobs? In my opinion, yes. Are they overworked, overloaded, and underpaid? Yes. But what I don't believe is that Gabriel's case was unextraordinary. and it was abundantly clear that further investigation and intervention should have been triggered. The first reports about Gabriel came into the DCFS shortly after Gabriel came to live with his mother and her boyfriend. As I mentioned a moment ago, His case was closed in April of 2013, and he was murdered in May. So for about a span of seven months, the DCFS and workers assigned to his case had been supposedly overseeing it based on a report made to them by his teacher. There was at least one report that was attempted to be made by a security guard, and there were some reports made by members of Gabriel's own family. As the pages of his file continued to grow with details of ongoing physical abuse, nobody ever stepped in. Gabriel nor his siblings were ever removed from the home. Let's go through some of the reports that came in and some of the things Gabriel's caseworkers had been made aware of while his case was open and active. We know that Gabriel reached out for help in some way, shape or form at least eight times. Imagine that you're a schoolteacher, or anybody for that matter, and a child approaches you and asks you if it's normal for your mom to hit you with a belt, and is it normal for you to bleed? Well, Gabriel did just that. These are just two questions he asked of his teacher, Jennifer Garcia. A lot of times when we read about Gabriel, the words, quote, in the months before he was beaten to death, or in the months before he died, or even in the months before he was murdered. We read that a lot, but we have to remember that this is the entire duration of the abuse. It only took months to kill him. Everything happened to that child in the months leading up to it. So yes, he asked these questions of his teacher before he died in the home in which he was being tortured the home from which he was never removed from, despite all the documentary outlined, everything that I've told you thus far, and everything that I'm about to tell you now. It is shocking that this child was never taken from this home. How many times was Gabriel's abuse reported to the DCFS? I don't know if we have an exact number. We do know that calls came from various witnesses to his injuries. His teacher and his own family and the security guard, which I'll talk about in a little bit, put his own job on the line to try to seek help for Gabriel, too. All of these people wanted someone to intervene, but that never happened. So I have to ask, what is the point of reporting? What's the point of initiating a file? What's the point of the DCFS if this is going to be the end result? All you have to do is watch the opening scenes of the trial of Gabriel Fernandez to see the end result. I don't even need to say it. What shocks us even deeper than what we know Gabriel endured is the fact that this didn't happen out of view of the general public. This was not a dark family secret being kept behind closed doors. Gabriel went to school beaten and battered. He had clearly visible bruises, injuries that were or had been bloodied or in various stages of scabbing or that were healing. But I don't think Gabriel was ever really fully healed. He had stages of injuries, old ones, new ones, and everything in between. His body told a tragic story, but nobody that needed to listen, listened. He showed his teacher, he showed the security guard, he showed members of his family. And all of this happened without his mom knowing that he was telling people. The question that Gabriel asked his teacher about being hit with a belt and if it was normal to bleed was the first time Jennifer Garcia became aware that something was really wrong. When he started asking questions like this, it troubled her deeply. It was his attempt to figure out if what was happening to him was normal. If this was something that all kids go through, if this was right, it was in that moment that Jennifer decided that at the end of the school day, she was going to make the first of her calls to report the suspected abuse, which she did. The report was taken and whomever she spoke to told Jennifer that the situation would be investigated. From there, Stephanie Rodriguez was assigned to Gabriel's case. Stephanie called Jennifer to follow up to get more information. But it would be the only time Jennifer would call to make a report about Gabriel to the DCFS, though she would call Stephanie directly with some follow-up information, and I will get to that. I can only assume that Jennifer assumed that this was being handled now. I don't know. If a child comes to school every other day with a new injury, are you supposed to call every single time? I thought about that. I've been a mandated reporter. If I saw signs of abuse, I would have to call, right? In my own mind, and I'm thinking, okay, this is now in the hands of the appropriate agency. They are going to do their jobs. I've done my part. But what do you think? And even if Jennifer called multiple times, would it have made a difference? I tend to think so because every new injury is a new incident. Every incident is a crime, isn't it? Every time Gabriel came to school with a busted lip or black eyes or ripped out hair, it's another criminal act that he suffered, right? If I went over to my neighbor's house and punched somebody, I'd be arrested, I'd be charged, and I'd be released to wait for the consequences of my actions, right? But if I went back over to punch my neighbor again, I'd be arrested again, charged some more, and quite possibly held in lieu of bail. If I made bail and I went home and I went back over to punch my neighbor again, I'd be arrested again, charged some more, and I could be held indefinitely. I could have a restraining order issued against me. I could lose my home. With every new assault that I commit, the consequences increase. So why is not the same logic applied to child abusers? Gabriel, when he got punched, he did not have the ability to call 911 or to get into his car and drive over to the police station to file a report like my neighbor in my hypothetical scenario would have been able to do. Law enforcement would have come and intervened and do everything in its power to make sure that I stay the hell away from my neighbor to prevent me from future assaults. Because my neighbor is capable of advocating for himself. And there is where the DCFS and its representatives come into the picture. They have the responsibility of doing for Gabriel what he is incapable of doing for himself. The system is perfectly well suited for dealing with random street crime or everyday run-of-the-mill assaults between two parties. But when the most vulnerable of our society are being assaulted over and over and over again, behind the closed doors of their own home, the same level of urgency just simply does not exist. At least, it didn't here with Gabriel. Jennifer reported seeing various injuries on Gabriel's body during the time that she was his teacher up until his murder. She saw his hair having been forcibly pulled from his scalp. She witnessed chunks of his hair missing from his head with patterns of scabbing underneath whatever hair was left he had a fat lip and when Jennifer asked him about it he told her his mom punched him Jennifer summoned the school principal into her classroom explained what Gabriel had told her at which point the principal suggested that she call to report it so Jennifer called up Stephanie to inform her of Gabriel's new injuries and the things that he had told her and yet Gabriel continued to remain in the home Not too long after the fat lip, Gabriel arrived at school. His face was covered in bruises. His eyes were swollen almost shut, but not completely. Jennifer said that he looked horrible. When the other children went out for recess, she asked Gabriel to hang back. She questioned him about the injuries on his face, and at first he explained that he had fallen. I don't know how much Jennifer prodded him, but eventually Gabriel came with the truth. His mom using a BB gun, shot him in the face. I was shocked when I heard this detail, as were many of us who know Gabriel's story or watch the documentary. So one can only imagine what that experience was like to hear those spoken words come directly from a little child. Jennifer asked him why he didn't tell her right away, and he said that he was scared too. He explained that every time that he admits to her that he's being abused by his mom, that lady comes to his house and he gets hurt even worse than before. And by that lady, Gabriel was talking about Stephanie Rodriguez. And that caused Jennifer a measure of hesitation. What a horrible place to be in, right? Jennifer has to report these new injuries. And now she knows Gabriel is being shot in the face with a BB gun. But every time she does, it prompts a visit by Stephanie. But then nothing happens. Stephanie leaves and Gabriel gets beaten down even harder. But Jennifer had no choice. She called Stephanie. And she told her what she witnessed and what Gabriel admitted to. A home visit was initiated. And Gabriel lied to Stephanie. He said he was injured accidentally and insisted he not receive medical treatment. And to me, this was a huge misstep on Stephanie's part. She was Gabriel's lifeline. She has to know, she should have known that he was being kept under a severe amount of fear and intimidation. Yes, he is not telling her the truth. That's because he's afraid to. He's going to get beaten if he tells her the truth, but he's going to get beaten regardless because of her visit. And she continued to walk away, satisfied with what he was telling her. Gabriel should not have had to speak with his voice. His injuries, those were speaking for him. They were crying out and screaming. Stephanie chose not to listen. Following that visit prompted by Jennifer's report that Gabriel had been shot in the face with a BB gun by his mother, Gabriel failed to show up for school for the next 13 days. And when he finally did reappear at school, his teacher said the whites of his eyes were completely obscured by red, which I'm guessing was probably retinal hemorrhaging. Whatever Gabriel's mom and or her boyfriend were doing to him, were causing the blood vessels in his eyes to rupture. Jennifer said the skin on his forehead appeared as if it had been skinned off, like he had crashed on his bike and suffered road rash as a result of friction against the pavement. And his classmates were terrified of the way that Gabriel appeared. I can only imagine that these children had never seen anything like that. I don't know if I've ever seen anything like that in person, to be honest. I've never had a job or been in any sort of situation where I've seen injured people on a regular basis. And remember, dreamers, this is after 13 days of not showing up after school, which in and of itself should have raised more alarm bells. When my kid was not in class in elementary school, I needed to do some explaining, I needed to write some notes. I needed to jump through hoops. Even when I kept Evelyn out of school for a family vacation one time, the school read me the riot act over it. I'd personally be afraid to keep my kid out of school for that many days. Those attendance ladies were not pleasant people. Anyway, Jennifer said that after those 13 days when Gabriel finally showed back up, that was the worst that she had ever seen him. What does that mean? Well, that means that Gabriel probably suffered 13 days of severe abuse, so severe that his parents couldn't send him to school and that the state that he was in when he did show up, that was the worst that she had ever seen him. That would have included his time to have been healing, somewhat healed anyway, but he still looked awful. Imagine how he looked on day one of his absence or day two or three. 13 days, any one of which Stephanie could have shown up at the door with a police officer if she wanted to see for herself the horrors in which Gabriel was living. I can't even bear to think about what was going on during those 13 days, and that's just school days. There would be at least four weekend days in there, too. When Gabriel arrived at school after that extended absence with all these new injuries, Jennifer called Stephanie again, but she never spoke to her, and she never received a return phone call. You may now be aware or familiar with Gabriel's infamous Mother's Day photo. That's what the children in Jennifer's class were working on at the time that Gabriel returned to school. Mother's Day that year in 2013 was on Sunday, May 12th. And it is not uncommon in elementary school for the teacher to have those little projects and crafts for the kids to make for their moms to take home on the Friday before Mother's Day, right? We did the same things in preschool. We'd even have little parties in the classroom and invite the moms and same for the dads over on Father's Day. So in the timeline of our story, Mother's Day was 10 days before Gabriel was rushed to the hospital on May 22nd, 12 days before he was found to be brain dead. And he made his Mother's Day projects. And in those projects, Gabriel told his mother that he loved her, that she was beautiful, that she was loving. He gave her a coupon that when she redeemed it with him, they could spend time together. He wrote her notes, notes that said he would love her until she died. He wrote one note that said, I love you so much, that I will kill myself. Gabriel knew how much his mom hated him, how much she didn't want him. And that little child loved her so much that he would rid her of himself for her just to make her happy. By the way, the DCFS was notified of the suicide note, as I previously mentioned, when Greg Merritt went to look at his case file when it was already too late and he saw the mention of it but brushed it off. Even then, he brushed it off when Gabriel was on the verge of death in the hospital. (sighs) Case closed, they said, right? Case closed. So in the Mother's Day picture, Gabriel is holding up letters that spell out Mom, M-O-M. The injuries on his face are clearly visible and yet He still smiled for the pictures. This boy loved his mom. I don't think children really know any different yet. It is not in a child's nature to not love their mother. He didn't know how to be or think or exist in any other way. All of his writings to his mom were loving and sweet. Even the suicide note in its own way was a gesture of love towards her. She was actually the one who gave the note to the DCFS, but she said he did that for attention. But I don't know, dreamers. I've only raised one kid, but if my eight-year-old wrote me a note that said that she loved me so much that she'd kill herself, I'd be really, really troubled by that. And yeah, it would get my attention. It would get everyone's attention. Any threat of self-harm should be looked at as a huge warning sign. And Pearl tried to blow it off as a flippant ploy to garner attention. And for the DCFS to accept that is beyond logical to me. And do you know why the DCFS decided not to take Gabriel's note seriously, aside from the fact that his mother was being so dismissive of it? The reason why more wasn't made of the note at the time that it was handed over by Pearl is because Gabriel never laid out a specific plan or any details about actually completing suicide. And another thing that had some scratching their heads is, why the hell would Pearl voluntarily hand this disturbing suicide note over to the DCFS? If a parent or guardian is being investigated for a suspected child abuse, handing over the suicide note could be construed as an attempt to get Gabriel some help, which is completely opposite of what we know about Pearl. She had never done anything that was helpful, useful, or beneficial to Gabriel or his well-being. So why show this note to the DCFS counselor? Well, it's been speculated that it was all a part of Pearl's intentions of someday being rid of Gabriel. I tend not to buy into that theory for no other reason than it takes a bit of forethought and planning to connect Gabriel's suicide note to his eventual death. And Pearl Fernandez doesn't strike me as all that bright. I do understand that Pearl allegedly grew up with her own set of difficult circumstances, including abuse and sexual assault, if I remember correctly, and that she had somewhat of a low IQ and was generally cognitively delayed. Many times we have these sort of mitigating circumstances. We consider those when discussing a killer like Pearl. Pearl. I don't want to dismiss that, but this woman is one of the most detestable criminal defendants we have ever talked about, and I'll be honest with you, I don't have any sympathy for her. I don't like her, and I do think she is much too dense to think that far in advance about anything involving Gabriel. So what do I make of Pearl handing over the suicide note? I think she thought it painted a positive picture of herself as Gabriel's mother because the note read that Gabriel loved her so much that he would kill himself for her. I think giving the note was completely and totally self-serving on her part. It was not an attempt to get Gabriel any help, but rather to have something to point to and say, look, my boy is fine. He loves me. I'm important to him. And here he said it in his own writing, in his own words. All of Gabriel's Mother's Day projects were filled with nothing but love and adoration for his mother. A truly abused child wouldn't say all these nice things about a person who was putting a beat down on him every single day, right? Oh, yeah, a child actually would. Obviously, Gabriel did. He desperately wanted to please his mom because he did not reach an age in life where he knew how to not love her. He didn't know any different or any better. Before Pearl decided she wanted to reap the financial benefits of having Gabriel living under her roof, he was being raised by his uncle along with his uncle's partner. They were the ones that wanted him when Pearl gave birth and walked away from the hospital without her newborn baby. It was Gabriel's uncle and his partner's opportunity to become parents. But that situation only lasted for about two to three years, at which point, Gabriel went to live with his grandparents. Robert and Sandra. He continued to live there and be raised by his grandparents for the next four to five years approximately. It was then in the fall of 2012 that Pearl uprooted Gabriel from his grandparents' home, taking him to live with her for the last eight months of his life. Having custody of Gabriel meant that Pearl would be able to get either government food or money or both as long as he was living with her. Gabriel's grandfather would later go on to testify that his grandson expressed a strong desire to come home. Robert tried to reassure his grandson that the DCFS was working on it, but he couldn't bring him home just yet. But they were working on it, and soon he'd be able to. He said that he promised. When Pearl and Osario took Gabriel from his grandparents, several attempts were made to contact police. The grandparents accused Asario Aguirre of kidnapping Gabriel. They also said they called to warn law enforcement that Pearl had a lengthy history of being abusive towards her children. But despite the desperate calls to regain physical custody of Gabriel, there was nothing anyone could do to stop Pearl. He was her son, and as a parent, she had every right to take him. Nobody could stop her, and nobody did. Pearl's aunt and uncle, Gabriel's great-aunt and uncle, also said that they contacted DCFS on three separate occasions out of fear that Gabriel was being harmed while in the custody of his mother. They also said that they spoke to the sheriff's department about their concerns on two other occasions. Apparently, Stephanie Rodriguez was never made aware of any other prior allegations that Pearl was abusive. And on top of that, the DCFS has clearly stated that they never saw any alleged abuse that was enough to raise concerns to the point where Gabriel would have been removed from Pearl's custody. They said there weren't enough signs. What I don't know is what enough means and how enough is actually measured. So Pearl had a sister or has a sister named Melissa Fernandez. She was in the documentary and she testified as to the things that she witnessed and was aware of during the time that Gabriel was in the care of her sister and her boyfriend. On the stand, she said that she would frequently spend time at Pearl's house, that she would stay the night, because when she did, she would be able to help protect Gabriel from the abuse that she knew that he was suffering. I'm not clear if her staying over would have caused Pearl and Asario from attacking Gabriel, or if Melissa would actually intervene in the event that he was being attacked, but whatever the case was, her presence, in some way, gave her nephew somewhat of a reprieve from the torture and the beatings. There were times when Melissa witnessed Gabriel having suffered a black eye, and he had some teeth knocked out. She asked him about it, she asked him what happened, and he explained that he got the injuries play-fighting with his siblings. However, unsatisfied with his answers, Melissa continued to pursue the line of questioning until she eventually was able to draw the truth out of him. His mom had hit him. Despite the knowledge Melissa had about what was going on behind the closed doors with Gabriel, she felt powerless to do anything. She was young. She wasn't even 18 yet. She didn't know how to help. She didn't know if she could help but she admitted that she never thought things would go as far as they actually did. Arturo Miranda Martinez was a security guard who was assigned to work at the government assistance office. On April 26, 2013, he described seeing Gabriel brought into the office by a heavily tattooed Pearl Fernandez and some other children, likely Gabriel's siblings. Because Gabriel had on a short sleeve t-shirt, Arturo could see a plethora of injuries all over his arms as well as on his face and head. Specifically, he noted on the back of Gabriel's head, the injuries appeared to be consistent with a lit cigarette being used to leave burn marks. This was torture. Arturo said the injuries varied in size and were basically all over the place when it came to various stages of healing. Some injuries appeared to be brand new, Some were partially healed, some almost healed. Around Gabriel's eyes, the bruises were also visible, and notably in various stages of healing as well. In order for there to be so many injuries in nearly every single stage of healing, it's safe to say that Gabriel did not live a single day with his mom and her boyfriend that did not involve a tremendous amount of suffering on some level. Arturo knew that this kid was getting beaten up bad. He even said on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the worst levels of abuse, he would have ranked Gabriel at a 20. Arturo stared at Gabriel as he slowly made his way past the desk that he sat at. And as Gabriel walked by, he made some sort of gesture with his arm. He held it up, surreptitiously so his mother wouldn't notice. Gabriel made brief, fleeting eye contact with Arturo So slight as to not cause any attention to be drawn to what he was doing, so he could quietly share his secrets and his pain, most likely with the hopes that someone would come and save him. The shock of what Arturo was witnessing broke his heart. This child was not being abused, he was being abused viciously and consistently. Arturo said Gabriel's body was telling him a story. Yelling it, actually. Gabriel need not have said a single word to Arturo for him to get the message. This boy needed help. Pearl did not stay long, and I'll talk more about that towards the end. But she did briefly speak to a customer service representative at the window. Arturo went to talk to her. Her name was Maricela Corona. He questioned her as to whether or not she saw what he saw. Marisol later stated that she did speak to her supervisor about the boys' injuries, asking if they needed to intervene. But according to her, she was told by her direct supervisors to stay out of it. Arturo called his supervisors, too, in an effort to get some guidance as to what steps to take in a situation like this. And he, too, later stated that he was told to stay out of it as well. None of this was sitting well with Arturo, so eventually he approached Maricela and asked her if she would be willing to go against the department's policies and give him Gabriel's full name, address, and phone number listed in their files. Of course, this is a serious violation when it comes to client privacy, and it would put both of their jobs on the line for anyone to find out. But Maricela agreed to Arturo's request and slipped him the family's information. From there, Arturo said he called 911 to report what he had witnessed that day in his office. His call was transferred to the local county sheriff's office, at which time they told Arturo that they would have two of their officers check in on Gabriel. Whether the sheriff actually checked in on him or not as a result of that call, I'm not certain. Arturo later said that he was told that they did and they found nothing. What we do know for sure is Gabriel still was not removed from his mother's care. He was left to remain living there with her and her boyfriend, and he would only last for 29 more days. 29 days after Gabriel's battered little body brushed past Arturo's desk, he would be dead. As a result of all these witnesses having seen what Gabriel was subjected to, and tried to trigger an intervention. And there were more than enough, in my opinion. The four social workers that oversaw Gabriel's case, Greg Merritt, Kevin Baum, Patricia Clement, and Stephanie Rodriguez, were arrested and charged with criminal negligence and falsifying reports. And what was the final tally of people who encountered Gabriel, who strongly felt that the boy needed help, but ultimately nothing was done to save him? Well, let's count. We have his teacher, his principal, the security guard, his immediate supervisor, Maricela, the clerk in the office, her immediate supervisor, both of Gabriel's grandparents, his aunt, his great aunt, his great uncle. That right there is almost a dozen people that either raised the alarm or tried to raise the alarm or knew that an alarm needed to be raised. Anyway, as I was saying, those four social workers were charged. But earlier this year, the charges were dropped before it ever made its way through the court system. And the reason the charges were dropped was because the prosecutors assigned to the case were unable to prove that they had, quote, the requisite duty to control the abusers, unquote. In other words, the prosecution claimed that the social workers assigned to Gabriel's case did not do their jobs and this resulted in Gabriel's death. But in the eyes of the law in this case, was that they needed to be in the actual care or custody of Gabriel in order to fail to have protected him. Thus, the case was tossed. I did touch on their roles in Gabriel's case briefly, but let's stop and talk about them a little bit more. If Gabriel's social workers would have gone to trial, it would have been setting a groundbreaking and historic precedence within the criminal justice system in cases such as this. It is almost unheard of that social workers be charged criminally when a child is murdered on their watch. It would have been one of the first in U.S. history that representatives for the DCFS would actually go to prison if convicted as a result of their involvement or lack thereof in a case where the death of a child occurs. Within the DCFS, there is a hierarchy. At the top is a regional administrator. Beneath that is the assistant regional administrator. Then the department becomes divided into two separate branches or units the emergency response department and the family preservation department. Greg Merritt was a supervisor with family preservation, and Patricia Clement, along with several others, worked under him in that department. Kevin Baum was a supervisor with emergency response, and Stephanie Rodriguez, along with several others, worked under him in that department. So each of these departments at some point in time had Gabriel's file and each with their respective duties in providing services to him and his family. The contention was that Gabriel's death was foreseeable and preventable and in failing to protect him by failing to do their jobs, these four individuals were grossly negligent and reckless. And the things that they did collectively resulted in Gabriel being kept in harm's way when he should have been removed from the home where he ultimately would be murdered. Kevin Baum, the emergency response supervisor, had Gabriel's file in his department for three months. He was a supervisor directly in charge of dealing with Gabriel, his family and his living situation he was the one that signed off on Gabriel's files that he was at a high-risk level of abuse and neglect. But in his defense, it's been said that Kevin Baum did his job and did all that was required of him. But because he was Stephanie's immediate supervisor, he was just as accountable as she was for the decisions that she made at her level, and that included not referring Gabriel to be seen by a physician when his teacher reported, that he had said his mom had shot him in the face with a BB gun. Kevin Baum was described as a hands-off type of supervisor, and the breakdown in the chain of the system for which he is responsible leading to Gabriel's death is the fact that he failed to ensure that an injury chart was created in order to document the physical signs of abuse that were clearly seen by many people, and that he failed to step in, He failed to override Stephanie's decision to not refer Gabriel to be seen by a doctor or to ensure that Gabriel received the medical treatment that he needed for his various injuries. Greg Merritt was a supervisor in the Family Preservation Department. With two dozen years of experience working with children, he had never been suspected or charged with any crimes beyond traffic citations. He would say at any given time, he was in charge of nearly 200 cases, even as many as 280 at one point. And to him, it is beyond humanly possible for him to keep tabs on every child's case that he oversaw, that they did the best that they could with the resources that they had to manage all of their cases. And Gabriel's murder on his watch, he said, was devastating. Greg said that he had never seen anything that even came close to like what happened to Gabriel ever before. And this, Dreamers, is the biggest issue that I take with the role of the DCFS workers and supervisors. It isn't the first time that we've heard someone involved in this case say the exact same thing in speaking about Gabriel's abuse, that it was unlike anything they'd ever seen. Should that not have stood out to these people? I said this wasn't going to be an hour-long bashing of social workers, I promised you that because I know this job is hard and I know they are not paid nearly enough and they have more cases than they should. But every time someone says that they had never seen anything like Gabriel's case, I can only shake my head and wonder why then? His case should have stood out. And what makes this whole thing even more devastating is the fact that Pearl Fernandez and Asaro Aguirre really didn't make all that much of an effort to try and hide the signs of the abuse. They did, to an extent, like keeping Gabriel out of school for 13 days just prior to Mother's Day projects being made and those pictures of him being taken for those projects. But honestly, they didn't hide it. They continued to regularly send Gabriel to school covered with marks, bruises, open wounds, scabs, patches of ripped out hair, burns, BB gunshots, just to name a few. And they did so because they were getting away with it. They made up excuses. They compelled Gabriel to lie. And everyone just took their word for it. So they kept doing it. They kept sending Gabriel to school. Pearl showed up with him at the welfare office, all battered and beaten and they continued to be emboldened by the fact that nobody was alarmed enough to intervene. When Greg Merritt was questioned by internal affairs following Gabriel's murder, a question was asked of him. Did you ever ask any of your subordinates who had direct face-to-face contact with Gabriel if there was any sustained abuse going on? And Greg said that he couldn't remember. Stephanie Rodriguez was relatively new to the department and she worked directly under Kevin Baum in the emergency response unit. Her role meant that she would be one of the primary individuals to arrive once an abuse report is called in and it would be her job to assess the situation and evaluate what steps needed to be taken next. She was the one Gabriel's teacher spoke to at least a couple of times, possibly three or more to report new injuries Gabriel arrived at school with. However, despite Stephanie being on the front lines of this, the case has been made in her defense that she was far too inexperienced to have been placed in that role and there should have been someone else who had worked in the emergency response capacity for a longer period of time than she. Again, not wanting to come down solely on these people who were charged, but Stephanie Rodriguez must have had some background, experience, education or otherwise to have been able to develop some level of common sense. She was hearing from Gabriel's teacher more often than she normally would have. If she got one call from his teacher, okay. But then there was a second call and then third calls and calls that never went answered. And this was over a relatively short span of time. This is a trusted person outside the home, a mandated reporter who sees and knows young children day in and day out. And she has got no dog in this fight. So why Stephanie would choose to believe Pearl and Gabriel over his teacher, I don't quite understand. Is it because Gabriel lied to Stephanie, told her he fell or something like that, and she just made a judgment call and decided to believe him? These social workers must have some idea that these children are living, acting, and behaving under extreme duress. Gabriel said it directly to his teacher. Every time I tell you something, that lady shows up and I get beat worse. Stephanie had the power to initiate an intervention, to have Gabriel removed from that nightmare that he was living in. And can you just imagine Gabriel standing there in front of this woman, this social worker, with his mom hovering nearby or in the next room over? He's staring at his lifeline right in front of him. He probably so badly wants to speak up to save himself. But his voice was being manipulated, controlled, and silenced by the two terrorists that he was being forced to live with knowing that as soon as Stephanie walked out that front door, without him once again, that a beating more severe than the last was coming to make sure the next time that he goes to school that he will keep his damn mouth shut. Eight months of the streamers, He endured eight long, insufferable months. Stephanie Rodriguez is said to have been naive, that she was young, though... At 34, not that young, but okay. And it is believed that Pearl, being a master of manipulation, apparently, that she was able to focus in on Stephanie's weaknesses, thereby being able to talk her way out of everything. The bottom line is Stephanie took Pearl's word at face value. Pearl explained how the injuries occurred and Stephanie accepted what she was being told. On top of that, Stephanie failed to document several of the injuries Gabriel had on his body, nor did she develop a chart where she was supposed to have accounted for the location of each injury that she saw. To me, whether or not Stephanie was experienced, if a child is injured, then perhaps those injuries should have been documented and noted anyway, because what they could have been doing is keeping a record of an ongoing pattern. If Gabriel had a series of injuries in various stages of healing, if his teacher was consistently reporting that Gabriel is admitting to being beaten or for God's sakes being shot with a BB gun at home and Stephanie were to follow up with a home visit following every report, there has to come a point where you're looking at the story that this poor child's body is telling you. He's got injuries on top of injuries on top of injuries. He's got skin peeling Burns, scars, scabs, contusions. How many times in a day can one child fall and hurt himself? Maybe Stephanie was a little too naive or too gullible. Maybe it was easy for Pearl to pull the wool over her eyes. And maybe she didn't think eight-year-old Gabriel would tell lies. I don't know. But the signs were there. Stephanie just either didn't or wouldn't acknowledge them. The fourth and final DCFS worker to be charged in Gabriel's case was 69-year-old Patricia Clement. And of the four, she appears to have been the most problematic. Her colleagues described her as difficult, discourteous, unprofessional, and generally incompetent to be in the sign of work. So why was she working in the family preservation branch of the DCFS under Greg Merritt? As to me, it seems like those are the exact opposite personality traits required of someone given the responsibility of working with families to keep them intact, to prevent children from being removed from the home and placed into the foster care system. You'd think that it would be a person with compassion and kindness and a true and heartfelt desire to help families and children reunite or stay together. So it has us wondering What the hell is this woman doing working for the Department of Children and Family Services then? Information came out during the course of the investigation into Gabriel's murder that Patricia Clement gave inconsistent statements regarding her role in Gabriel's case and the events leading up to and surrounding his death. She told different stories to the internal affairs investigators and different stories to her attorneys. And I mean, if we want to give her the benefit of the doubt, a little bit of leeway, then we can consider the circumstances and nature of her job then. Chances are she's struggling similarly as all the other social workers were. She's overwhelmed with more cases than she can handle. Is she supposed to remember every single detail of every case in the event a tragedy like this occurs? Perhaps not off the top of her head, but that's the exact reason why documenting things becomes so important. Making notes, keeping an injury chart, Recording incidents, dates, times, people involved, witnesses, statements. Once it's properly documented, then the file can be set aside. And you have your bases covered. If and when the time comes, you need to refer back to them, it's there. And you know what? The buck didn't have to stop with these four individuals. For example, if Stephanie Rodriguez saw injuries on Gabriel... If she had heard from his teacher that he had been shot in the face with the BB gun by his mother, she could have asked Gabriel about it, hopefully without his mother within earshot. Then she could have asked Mom about it too. Is this true? But honestly, who would make up something like that? The least she could have done is documented what she was told and what she saw, and then she could have gone to her immediate supervisor, who was Kevin Baum and she could have told him that she was concerned about what she saw and heard and left the decision in his hands as to what to do next. He could have elevated those cases to his supervisors, or he could have just signed off on it and filed it away without taking any action. They both had the choice to take Gabriel's case to their supervisors, but they chose not to. And if Stephanie Rodriguez was as naive and gullible as she was portrayed by her attorney, then she should have definitely taken Gabriel's case to her immediate supervisors and made a note of that in her report. Then she would have covered all her bases. Perhaps it's more simple to say than it is to actually do because of time constraints or an excessive workload. But that's another thing in this case That needed to be addressed, not just filed away. Gabriel's file was pushed aside over and over and over again, while time and time again, reports of abuse coming into the DCFS were ignored. And then, ultimately, his case was closed. Those who closed it, Stephanie Rodriguez and Kevin Baum, they were apparently satisfied that Gabriel was in good and safe hands. Patricia Clement staunchly defended herself against any wrongdoing, insisting that she did her job. And what's more, she claimed that no mention of abuse was ever made to her in regards to Gabriel's case, and she never saw any signs of abuse in her firsthand interactions with Gabriel and his family. And it was her report and recommendation that ultimately led to Greg Merritt signing off on closing Gabriel's case. Patricia Clement indicated in her report that Asaro Gary Pearl's boyfriend, get this, this is her assessment of him when she met him, that he was, quote, an upstanding and caring adult with no criminal history. That is a direct quote from her report. And not only did Patricia say that there were no red flags to be concerned about, and remember, he was listed at a high level of risk of abuse and neglect, that Gabriel's risk was decreasing, not increasing. And she further wrote in her report on Gabriel that there was no risk to his safety or well being and made the recommendation that his case be closed, which is what Greg Merritt signed off on and approved. And thus, the false reporting charges were levied as a result of this assessment that Gabriel was safe and that his case needed to be closed. When questioned by internal affairs about Gabriel's behavior in school, Patricia Clement indicated that he was a bad child. He was consistently acting up. He was very angry and disrespectful to his teachers. And dreamers, Patricia did not get this information from the school. She was told this by Gabriel's mom. And what's more is she did not contact the school or speak to Gabriel's teachers in order to see if what Pearl was reporting was accurate. She never verified this information. She just took what Pearl said again at face value. And for me, this just adds yet another layer of sadness to this tragedy. Because essentially what is happening here is Pearl is painting this portrait of Gabriel as being a problem child. That all of this is happening to him. All of these visits from DCFS workers, all of these reports being filed, etc., This is somehow his fault because he's acting up in school. And heaven forbid the kid is somewhat of a troublemaker or a disruption in class. How the hell else is he supposed to act when he's getting the ever-living crap beat out of him every single day at home? Of course he's acting out. And all that should have been another red flag that the DCFS should have picked up on. And it was yet another thing that they ignored. And to me, it didn't matter if Patricia verified Gabriel's behavior in school. She really needed to get at the root of the problem. Why is he acting out in school? I bet anything that the first thought that comes to any one of our minds is that something must be going on at home. It might not be as severe of abuse that Gabriel had suffered. Maybe something's going on between the child's parents. Maybe they're fighting. Maybe there's a divorce pending. I don't know. Lots of things cause kids to act out. And the first place we think is home. I'm not even a social worker, nor am I qualified to be one. But geez, the signs were everywhere, big and small. It's hard to imagine closing Gabriel's case made any sense in the moment that it was signed off on. It just makes absolutely no sense to me. But anyways, these four social workers were charged Their actions were described as representative of an improper regard for human life and that they failed at every single level. They would appeal the charges before it ever made its way to trial, which was presented to a three-judge panel, and in a split two-to-one decision, the cases against them were dismissed because of a lack of probable cause that linked the four of them to the child abuse or to the charge of falsifying documents. And that is where the case stands today against them. There is no case, and I don't think there ever will be one. But it was a long shot to begin with. And I'm not 100% sure if I agree that their actions rose to a level of criminality. I'm never one to feel that any person should be made an example of in the criminal justice system in order to intimidate others into enacting change. In charging Greg, Kevin, Stephanie, and Patricia, it is quite possible that in doing so, they would do more harm than good. If they were charged and convicted and sent to prison for 10 years, then who's ever going to want to get into the field of social work in the future? When your freedom can be taken away from you because one parent flies off the handle one night and murders their child, a child that is in the DCFS system as being at some level of risk of abuse or neglect, then that person, as a social worker, is going to have to live every single day worried that someone else's actions are not only going to cost them their job, but also their livelihood and possibly your freedom. Nobody deserves to work under that kind of pressure and stress. And you are essentially at the mercy of a hundred or more families who have been reported on that they abuse their kids. And you have to hope that each child survives to the next day Or otherwise, you might just be seeing the inside of a prison cell yourself. Nobody would want that. Nobody would want to do that job. And then you have all these well-intentioned individuals who at some point in their lives felt that they had a calling. The calling to get into social work, working with families, with children, helping, advocating, serving the community, doing good work and then it turns out to be nothing like they envisioned. If these four were sent to prison, it would set a really scary precedent for the future of the DCFS and for the people who have made social work their life's work. Yes, there is a need for change. There needs to be more training, more staff, less cases per worker, better pay, better working conditions, and more defined guidelines with a plan to ensure that those guidelines are being adhered to I'd like to think that there have been some changes in the department since Gabriel was murdered I believe that they were I'll get into that towards the end but we do know that these four social workers involved in this case were fired but if you watched Gabriel's documentary then you know of at least two other children who have since died who are being overseen by the same office so clearly change hasn't been enough And the two other children that I'm speaking of, who are they? Well, first, there was 10-year-old Anthony Avalos. He lived with his parents in the city of Palmdale, and he was one of eight siblings. Anthony was a really good student, so much so he made it onto the honor roll. He was also an excellent runner with a promising future in athletics, whether it be running track or any other sport where he'd be able to use his talents. On June 10, 2018, Anthony died after allegedly having suffered long-term physical abuse and neglect by his parents. The abuse included refusal to feed Anthony during mealtime at home, as well as a refusal to allow him to use the bathroom. Along with this, Anthony was thrown around, his body smashed into furniture and fixtures in the home, and his siblings were ordered to participate in the abuse. At the time of Anthony's death, upon the autopsy examination, it was discovered that he had suffered multiple traumatic head injuries as well as cigarette burns all over his body. His cause of death was listed as internal bleeding in the skull, reportedly caused by having been dropped multiple times where he landed headfirst. According to the prosecutor assigned to the case, Anthony reached a point where he was no longer able to move or walk. He could no longer defend himself, he was completely knocked out cold, left lying on the floor of his bedroom for an unknown amount of time. He was in desperate need of immediate medical attention but never received any. It's been reported that his parents also had it in their minds that Anthony may have been gay, and this was the reason behind the beatings that he suffered. When paramedics were finally called, his mom reported that Anthony had suffered an accidental fall. But like Gabriel, Anthony's body told a much different story. As a result, his mom, Heather Barone, and her boyfriend, Karim Lavia, were arrested and charged with first-degree murder and torture. The prosecution has indicated that they will seek the death penalty. There are a number of parallels between Gabriel's case and Anthony's case, and I want to provide you with some more of the details regarding Anthony's But because this is becoming a lengthy episode, I will try to follow up with perhaps a bonus or an addendum following this one. The second child I was referring to was four-year-old Noah Quatro. And he was the latest child residing in Palmdale who did have a case file with the DCFS to be killed as a direct result of abuse perpetrated by his parents. But the thing about Noah's case is that the DCFS had taken their concerns and elevated it to a level where they took it before a judge. They stated that Noah was at a high risk of abuse and neglect. His life was in imminent danger. The judge was provided with their findings and their evidence. The judge was satisfied with what was presented and ordered that Noah be removed from the home. But for whatever reason, the DCFS never served that order. Noah was never taken from the home. On July 5th, 2019, his parents called 911 and reported that they found Noah in the pool where they say that he drowned. But it was clear, based on the injuries Noah had all over his body, just like Gabriel, just like Anthony, that Noah had suffered a tremendous amount of torture and in addition to that, his father is also accused of sexually abusing him as well. His death was ruled a homicide and his parents are also in jail awaiting trial on first-degree murder and torture charges. When I do the addendum, I will go into further details about him as well. Gabriel Fernandez met his first grade teacher in October of 2012. They were already one month into the school year, and his living situation had just changed. Gabriel had been living with his maternal grandparents when suddenly his mom, wanting to be the recipient of Gabriel's government benefits, took physical custody of him. At the time, he was seven years old and he had not ever lived a single day with his mother. His grandparents objected to Pearl taking over custody of Gabriel, going so far as to report her to the local sheriffs, accusing her of having a long history of abusing her children. The sheriff's department deciding this was nothing more than a dispute between them and their daughter over their grandson, found no reason to believe the allegations that Pearl's parents were making. And with that, Gabriel would now be in the custody of and at the mercy of his mother and her boyfriend, along with her two other siblings, at the time an 11-year-old brother Ezekiel and 9-year-old sister Virginia. Gabriel's teacher, Jennifer, Jennifer, She liked Gabriel. But his parents, not so much. When they brought Gabriel in for the first day of school, they were unlike all the other parents. They were distant, cold, where normally parents are excited about the start of a new school. They encourage their children, they're supportive, wanting to do what they can to make the adjustment easier. But not Pearl and Asario. They gave off a really negative vibe. They just seemed mean. That was Jennifer's takeaway from their initial interactions. This was a really mean couple. But Gabriel, he was quite different than them. And Jennifer took a liking to him right away. He was sweet. Very different demeanor than his parents presented. He seemed starved for his teacher's attentiveness to him. He wanted to please Jennifer. He wanted to receive gratitude from her and praise. Instead of going out to play at recess, he'd linger in the classroom, wanting to volunteer his time to help her with her menial tasks. After about two weeks, that's when he asked those questions Is it normal to be hit with a belt? Is it normal to bleed? Jennifer offered to talk to Gabriel about it once the other children were outside for recess. It would be at the end of that school day, that same day, she dialed the Los Angeles County Child Abuse Hotline, and that call would be captured on an audio recording. And in it, it's clear that Jennifer was nervous and anxious about making the call, and she was uncertain if she was doing the right thing by reporting the conversation that she'd had with Gabriel. She was asking herself the same questions Gabriel asked her. Is spanking your child normal? Well, children get spanked all the time, and it doesn't ever reach a point where the hotline is called over it. It's just the way that some families discipline. But once Jennifer brought up that Gabriel was reporting he was being hit with the metal buckle of a belt and that he would bleed as a result... The caseworker who took her call strongly agreed that she was doing the right thing. Jennifer provided whatever details that she could. And a few days later, she got a call from Stephanie Rodriguez. She was going to be the one to look into the abuse allegations. And if anything else were to occur, she asked Jennifer to give her a call right away. Jennifer was relieved that Gabriel was going to get the help that he needed. However, a couple days after this conversation with Stephanie, Jennifer had a parent conference that she had scheduled with Pearl prior to having reported the abuse to the hotline. The two women, both of them at the time, 29 years old, sat there awkwardly until Pearl finally broke the silence and announced, I don't hit my kids. Jennifer was like, okay, and carried on. Gabriel was a good kid, he was a good student, he was doing well with writing assignments and he was quite bright. Pearl didn't believe her. But there were also a few problems that Jennifer needed to address. This was only less than a month into his time in her classroom. Jennifer said that Gabriel was late to class far too much or he didn't show up at all. But when he was in attendance he had some difficulties with the other kids he would be disruptive he'd kick other children under the desk and this caused jennifer to have to repeatedly move gabriel to other parts of the classroom he didn't like to go outside at recess and when he did he was always alone standing near a wall kicking that wall with his foot but she did notice in class that if another student was struggling with an assignment Gabriel was always anxious to help. It was Monday, November 26, 2012, when Gabriel arrived at school that day, he was late as usual. But this time, when he walked into the classroom, all the other students turned and looked at him and erupted in laughter, mocking him as he had shown up with chunks of his hair ripped out of his scalp, with patches still left in place, along with a variety of scabs all over the top of his head. Gabriel, at first, stood in stunned silence as he was laughed at. That is, until he provided the explanation that his mother had rehearsed with him. My mom cut it like this, so what? Who cares? Mind your own business. Well, that didn't satisfy Jennifer. She asked the principal to come and take a look for himself, which he did, but only to an extent he asked Gabriel to sit down and explain to Jennifer, we're not here to investigate things. We just call if we see something. So Jennifer called Stephanie twice on two different numbers that she had given her and both times left voicemails. And like before, the day after this incident, Gabriel failed to show up for school. But it was only for one day. When he did come back, his hair was fixed as best as it could be which was styled into a mohawk. And even though this wasn't as startling as what she had seen two days earlier, it still bothered Jennifer. So she tried calling Stephanie again, and again her call went straight to voicemail. The day after that, Gabriel showed up in class with a split and swollen lip. Jennifer questioned him, and he explained that his mom punched him, which prompted her to call Stephanie again, And finally, she answered. Jennifer was getting frustrated. Every time she sees Gabriel, he's been attacked yet again by his mom. And she wanted to know, what are they doing about it? Are they talking to Pearl? What does she have to say about Gabriel's injuries and his hair? What excuses is Pearl providing? But Stephanie couldn't say that information was confidential. And over the course of the next few days and weeks, things with Gabriel, whatever was going on in his home, were clearly growing increasingly worse. When the kids lined up and walked together single file, Gabriel could hardly keep up, explaining to Jennifer that his arms and his legs were in a lot of pain. Jennifer understood and encouraged him as best as she could, telling him to move at whatever pace was comfortable for him. But she'd wait. Numerous times as the last bell of the day chimed, Jennifer would encounter Gabriel and he'd be sobbing and he'd tell her, I don't want to go home. The incident where Gabriel said his mother shot him in the face with the BB gun occurred towards the end of January of 2013. Jennifer was reading to her class when Gabriel arrived late as usual. Everyone spun their heads around and collectively found themselves in a state of shock at what they were witnessing. The entire class of first graders. But they didn't laugh this time. This wasn't funny. It wasn't anything any one of those children were capable of understanding. Gabriel's eyes were nearly swollen shut and he had tiny, Little round bruises flecked across his face. Once the other children were sent to recess, Jennifer asked him what happened. And this would be the first time that Gabriel tried to lie to her, telling her that he fell. She knew it was a lie, and she told him so. And Jennifer could see that her accusation that he was lying made him upset and angered. And as she pressed on, Gabriel finally blurted out that his mom shot him with the BB gun and admitted that he lied because every time he confesses something to her, that lady, meaning Stephanie, shows up at his house and he gets hurt more. Despite feeling as though her calls to Stephanie were only going to make things worse for Gabriel, she called anyway. She had to. Jennifer desperately wanted to know what Stephanie was planning on doing to protect Gabriel from further harm. She wanted to know if he was going to be taken out of that abusive environment. But Stephanie again refused to divulge anything to help ease Jennifer's growing fears and anxiety over Gabriel's safety and his situation in his home. And what in the world could Jennifer possibly have to say to Gabriel. What words do you have that you can come up with to try and comfort a child like him going through what he's going through? I don't know if there are any, especially when you're doing everything you can to help, but it feels like you're making things worse. Jennifer didn't want to lie to Gabriel and tell him everything was going to be okay. She didn't even believe that herself. The best that she could come up with was the one thing that he could hang on to, and it was the fact that someday he was going to turn 18, he was going to be an adult, and he'd be able to move out and be on his own. An abbreviated silence fell over their conversation, as it felt like they were both sitting there dreaming of the day that Gabriel would be 18 And free. And so we, as a society, arrive at a crossroads. What do we do with children who may be or are at a high risk of being abused? Do we err on the side of caution and remove children from their homes? Or do we pursue solutions that promote family preservation? Those who work in the field of social work say it's impossible to make either one of those a priority. Their job is to protect children that are at a high risk of abuse without needlessly removing them from their home. But making that choice, deciding what is right, takes highly trained professionals who are afforded the time and resources to do a comprehensive inquiry into each and every family. And the fact of the matter is that time and resources, and from the sounds of what's going on in the DCFS's Palmdale office, the highly trained professional staff, is non-existent. According to the Atlantic article, the year that Gabriel was murdered in 2013, Los Angeles County employed approximately 3,000 caseworkers for a department that fielded nearly a quarter million incoming phone calls on its child abuse hotline. When a child who is in the system dies, it becomes big news. The public becomes angered And that anger is aimed directly at social workers and the DCFS for failing to protect the life of the abused child. Especially when we find out how many times the DCFS were contacted. How many times the abuse was reported. How many times people witnessed unimaginable injuries. Fingers are pointed directly at the DCFS. But. There are consequences that aren't as black and white when a child is taken from the home. The fallout of that can be as traumatic and damaging. Those who support the notion of family preservation as being the priority are quick to point out that there simply aren't the same kinds of highly publicized stories out there to help highlight the importance of maintaining the family unit. One such story that the article pointed to involved a five-year-old girl from Maine named Logan Marr. At the time, in 2001, the DCFS system in the state was very pro-intervention, pro-removal from the home, and Logan was taken from her home and placed in foster care with a former social worker. Logan ended up being murdered by that caregiver. The media attention surrounding Logan's murder caused a shift from intervention To family preservation and over the next decade the numbers of children in foster care dropped by 25% across the United States but the statistics related to the rate at which children were being abused remained the same and in California the push for a drop in the numbers of children placed in foster care had been ongoing prior to the publicity surrounding Logan's death During Bush Jr.'s administration, family preservation activists lobbied for changes in the way the Department of Health and Human Services were funded. There used to be some jurisdictions, Los Angeles County being one of them, that used to receive money based on the numbers of children who had been placed in foster care. So in other words, the more children in foster care, the more federal funding the department would receive. Well, the Bush administration changed that allowing for each jurisdiction to continue to receive the same amount of money regardless of how many children were in foster care. Whatever money wasn't being used was to be reallocated towards family preservation instead of foster care. As a result, the numbers of children in foster care in Los Angeles County from 1998 to 2013 dropped from approximately 50,000 children to 19,000 children. So when Gabriel's file was started with the DCFS office in Palmdale, the chances of him being removed from his home were slim. Slimmer than they'd ever been. And Palmdale, from the way it's been described in various articles on this case, it's like working in a desert wasteland far away from the high-rise office buildings where the higher-ups in the DCFS worked in their pretty little offices. Greg Merritt had even said there'd been times when he'd call the headquarters and they didn't even know Palmdale was in their jurisdiction. And because Palmdale is so way out there, it isn't an office that people would honestly work at by choice. But they had to take what they could get because there was a spike in the city's population and it was mostly lower-income, struggling families. And there have been a number of studies conducted over the years that have made a definitive link between poverty and child abuse. And with that increase in population came an increase of incoming calls to report child abuse. And that increase was rising faster in Palmdale than any other city in the greater Los Angeles area. And nobody wanted to work in that office. In fact, a ban on transfers out of the Palmdale office was enacted. Otherwise, there'd be no staff. That was the place, dreamers. These were the people. This was the state of affairs in that office when Jennifer Garcia decided Gabriel Fernandez needed their help. And of all the various responsibilities that DCFS workers have in their specific jobs, the worst one, the one that nobody wanted to do, in this office, the last place anyone wanted to be assigned to work because it was so challenging, is the job of child abuse investigator. Yet, it is hands down the most important one. Because nobody wanted to do that job, it was the department's policy to start newcomers off there. That's when Stephanie Rodriguez was hired and assigned there. The job that nobody wanted in the office that nobody wanted to be at. She had a degree in psychology but absolutely no background or experience in social work. At any given time, Stephanie would have as many as 40 cases to investigate. When Gabriel's teacher called the child abuse hotline, his safety and well-being was placed in Stephanie's hands. Kevin Baum was Stephanie's immediate supervisor. At 33 years old at the time, he was only five years older than Stephanie. And by all accounts, he thrived in his role having earned his master's from USC's School of Social Work. It was up to him to oversee Stephanie's work. When she needed to make a decision, she consulted with him, and he would either approve it or deny it. His would be the last signature on all her reports. And what is so perplexing is that Kevin had always been known for his meticulous work in reviewing reports, making necessary additions or corrections and asking all the right questions. This guy was careful and thorough and detailed. He dotted the I's, he crossed the T's. Yet he so grossly mishandled Gabriel's case despite his reputation for his fastidiousness. What baffles us even more is the fact that Pearl Hernandez, that woman just didn't suddenly come out of nowhere when she began putting a beat down on Gabriel. In the decade leading up to his murder, records showed that at least four calls had been made to the child abuse hotline with accusations of abuse and neglect of Pearl's other children. We know that she abandoned Gabriel at the hospital when he was born, but she also abandoned her youngest child, a daughter, Destiny, and another child, Arnold, that was a year older than Gabriel, was removed from her home and she eventually lost custody of him. So Pearl had a history of abuse, neglect, abandoning, and losing her kids. So when Stephanie Rodriguez was given Gabriel's case, as she worked under Kevin Baum, they reviewed Pearl's troubling history, right? That's normal. Find out what they're dealing with here, isn't it? What better way to learn about someone's parenting than by looking at their history? All these red flags would have popped up and they would have seen that Gabriel's mother was a tyrannical, violent, abusive, madwoman that should not be in charge of any children. But they didn't. You heard right. Neither Stephanie nor Mr. Micromanager Kevin Baum investigated Pearl's past involvement with the DCFS. Stephanie never paid Gabriel's school a visit. She never knocked on neighbors' doors to see if anyone had any information or concerns about the home, or so-called home, that Pearl was keeping. And one of the most important things that needed to be done, Stephanie failed to do as well. She never took Gabriel or either of the siblings that were living in the home at the time aside and spoke to them individually and alone. And this was a required DCFS policy in order to alleviate the fear that children may have when it comes to talking to social workers in front of their abusers. Stephanie visited Gabriel's apartment two days after his teacher called her to report about him asking if it was normal for his mom to hit him with the belt and if it was normal for him to bleed. As Pearl hovered close by, Gabriel admitted to Stephanie that he lied to his teacher about his mom whipping him with a belt buckle. Stephanie did look at his body she did see a bruise on his left butt cheek and Pearl fessed up that she used the belt to spank him. Both Kevin and Stephanie decided that the bruise wasn't severe enough to intervene or for Gabriel to be checked out by a doctor. They did compel both Pearl and Asario to take drug tests, which they did, and the test turned up nothing in either of their systems. Stephanie visited the apartment about three weeks later as a routine check. She wrote that the children were all well-dressed, that they appeared healthy, and they did not have any injuries or bruises. A week later is when Jennifer called Stephanie about Gabriel's hair being ripped out and his split lip, and this prompted Stephanie to go back to the apartment for yet another visit. Gabriel told Stephanie that he lied to his teacher, that he caused a sore lip himself, telling her that he bites himself. Stephanie wrote in her notes that she observed a blister on Gabriel's lip. January 29th, 2013 was the last time Stephanie would ever visit Gabriel's home. This visit was prompted by Jennifer's call that Gabriel had admitted to her that his mother shot him in the face with a BB gun. Again, Stephanie did not pull Gabriel aside to speak to him privately out of earshot of his mother. Pearl again stood by as Stephanie questioned Gabriel about the injuries to his face and he lied. He explained that he and his siblings were playing a game of tag when he tripped and fell, injuring his face. And again, both Stephanie and Kevin did not send Gabriel to be examined by a doctor, nor was he removed from the home. But it actually didn't matter because by the time Stephanie had made that last visit, she had already submitted her recommendation and Kevin had already approved that recommendation that they would cease their investigation. They found there to be no evidence or indication that Gabriel was in danger of being harmed, nor did they find any signs that he was being abused or neglected. And what did Kevin and Stephanie have to say about this? Well, Kevin stayed quiet, refusing to ever comment about it. But Stephanie, well, her reasoning for ending her investigation into Gabriel's case was that she had other children and families that she was investigating who were at a much higher risk of danger and harm than Gabriel was. When Stephanie had entered Gabriel's information into their computer program that is used to assess a level of risk, the result placed Gabriel at a very high risk based on what she inputted. It would have then been required of Stephanie to elevate Gabriel's case for further consideration which means his case would have been sent to a judge and the judge would then make an order, possibly in order to assist with rent, as poverty is often an aggravating issue, or the judge may order the parents to attend anger management courses, all the way up to a judge possibly ordering the child removed from the home and placed in foster care. According to DCFS protocol, that is what should have happened based on Gabriel's risk assessment score. His case should have been brought into court, but it wasn't. Rather than elevating Gabriel's case into the court system, Stephanie went and spoke with a colleague a few cubicles away from hers with the family preservation unit of their office, the unit that Greg Merritt was in charge of. And it was decided to place Gabriel and his family into one of their programs known as the Voluntary Family Maintenance Program. What this would do is keep Gabriel in the family home as they collectively work through their problems to reach a resolution. And let's be clear here. This is not a program designed for families that scored as a high risk in their assessment program. This was specifically designed for those who scored at the lowest risk levels. Following the investigation into Gabriel's murder, it was discovered that the Palmdale DCFS workers were overusing the voluntary family maintenance program on families whose cases should have gone before a judge. And they did so because they were told specifically to never treat parents like perpetrators, but rather individuals who are in need of service and support. The most important decisions were not made by judges, not made by attorneys, but rather DCFS workers. And in Gabriel's case, it was a life-or-death decision that they made. And they decided wrong. Remember how I used the example of me going over to punch my neighbor and how I'd be arrested and charged with each new incident? But the same doesn't go if I punch my own child, right? There are laws on the books that if there is probable cause, if a domestic violence incident occurs, The abuser is arrested and charged, no matter if the victim wants to press charges or not. It's mandatory that the abuser is arrested. A police report is mandatory. An officer must make a report if domestic abuse is carried out by an intimate partner, and in turn that report is required to be sent to the district attorney's office for possible criminal prosecution. But if the victim is a child, a police report is not required nor is a review of the abuse by the district attorney for possible prosecution. In other words, domestic violence between intimate partners will send the abuser to jail. Domestic violence perpetrated against a child will not, at least not automatically. Stephanie Rodriguez was said to have literally begged for Gabriel's case to be taken into the voluntary family maintenance program, claiming that Pearl had only spanked her son once, that she was not a threat to Gabriel, that he was not in any imminent danger, and both mother and son were troubled, though Gabriel's behavior was much more troubling than Pearl's, as Pearl was perfectly willing to take part in the voluntary program. Stephanie was comfortable and encouraged with Pearl's openness to getting the help that she was recommending for them. Greg Merritt's Family Preservation Unit took over Gabriel's case on February 1st, 2013, literally just days after the BB gun report had been called in. Just days. In the paperwork he received, Greg saw that the box to mark Gabriel's case as urgent was left blank. Either Stephanie or Kevin could have checked that box. I mean, he just told his teacher days earlier that his mom shot him with a freaking BB gun and they left the high-priority box blank. So Greg Merritt did not consider Gabriel's file to be a priority when it landed on his desk. So now that Gabriel's case was in family preservation, a caseworker would be sent to the family home biweekly for both family and individual counseling. Enter into the picture Patricia Clement, a former nun who today is 69 years old. To Greg, he described Patricia as a burnout, but she'd have to do. Others described Patricia as being foul-mouthed with a short, hot temper, and she was not above yelling at her families that she worked with. And to compound things even more, Patricia was desperate to get the hell out of the Palmdale office and out of social work altogether. She made no secret of the fact that she wanted nothing to do with this job. So why the hell was she still there? Desperation, I guess, both on her part and the part of the DCFS that hired and kept her on. Greg Merritt was her supervisor, and he knew it too. He knew that Patricia Clement was an ill fit for this job. He had given her unsatisfactory reviews regarding her performance. Her work was consistently subpar, but he has said that his bosses altered his reviews of Patricia marking her instead as being competent and fit for duty. We'll come to find out that because DCFS workers are union workers, Greg is actually not allowed to give his subordinates unfavorable or negative reviews if they were at their capacity with their caseloads, which they were. So if I'm understanding correctly, as long as a DCF worker is overloaded with case files, nobody is allowed to write up a negative work performance review nor are they to be fired, demoted, suspended, or otherwise disciplined at all. In other words, they have no fear of repercussions or consequences. Patricia Clement was free to yell and scream profanities to her heart's content, and nobody could do a damn thing about it as long as her caseload was full. Okay, that doesn't sound too legit, but whatever. It's the union, I guess, that they're doing what they're supposed to do, to protect their members' jobs. The first time Patricia was sent to Gabriel's apartment was February 13th, 2013. The information she recorded in her notes about this visit were scant. The second visit happened two weeks later, and in her notes, Patricia wrote that Pearl Fernandez painted herself as a victim of abuse with a mom who never loved her. Patricia also jotted down that Asario was a very nice and pleasant individual. And we already know that Gabriel missed a lot of school, a lot of school. I told you already he was two grades behind. But Patricia's notes said that the kids were all doing well in school and they were attending regularly. Several of Gabriel's suicide notes were discovered by his brother, Ezekiel. Pearl spoke to the family therapist, Carmen Lugnorgan, on February 27th, 2013, about the notes. Carmen, in turn, spoke to Gabriel about the notes he had written and asked him if he really meant what he wrote, and he said that he did. She reported this information to both Greg and Patricia, and she called 911 to report the suicide notes, but neither Greg, Patricia, nor the police took action. Patricia's third and final visit to Gabriel's home took place on March 6, 2013, At this time, Pearl Fernandez informed Patricia that she was no longer interested in participating in the voluntary family maintenance program. And Patricia was like, cool, we'll take you out. One less family to worry about. In the file, Patricia wrote the following quote. It is my assessment that the mother is overwhelmed with her own emotional pain and she is unwilling to continue with counseling at this time. There are no safety risks to the children's welfare at this time. And with that, Patricia Clement recommended that Gabriel's case be officially closed. And as I said earlier, without reading Gabriel's entire file, Greg Merritt relied on Patricia to make the appropriate decisions and signed off on her recommendation. The incident with security guard Arturo Martinez occurred on April 26, 2013. Gabriel would have less than a month to live. It was clear to Arturo, without any of the professional training that the others who worked Gabriel's case and had closed it had, that Gabriel's safety was in jeopardy. As Gabriel sat with Pearl in the welfare office, she began screaming at him, at which point Arturo approached her and told her she needed to simmer down. He clearly saw what he believed to be cigarette burns all over Gabriel's head and neck, as well as ligature marks around his wrists, an indication to him that this boy had been tied up and bound. He also later stated that Gabriel had a black eye, he had numerous lumps all over his head, and his skin was a putrid yellowish color. And as Arturo stared at Gabriel, Pearl suddenly noticed and quickly snatched Gabriel and her other kids up and did what she could to shield Arturo's view of her battered son and left the welfare office. And as I told you previously, Arturo's supervisors told him to stay out of it. He managed to get the receptionist to give him Gabriel's contact information. He attempted to call the DCFS, but couldn't get through to a human being. Then he called 911 and told that this was not an emergency, so he was directed to the non-emergency number which he called. He was later informed that a sheriff was sent to the home, but nothing alarming was found, and they left. Shortly after this, Arturo Martinez requested to be transferred out of that office, disturbed by the unwillingness to want to help a child who was clearly in desperate need of it. Through all the abuse that Gabriel suffered he continued to want to try and please his mother. His teacher said that there were times that he would copy some passages out of books that she kept in the classroom onto a piece of paper. He'd do his best to copy the sentences correctly, and he would ask Jennifer if she would use her marker that she graded papers with to write an A on it for him so he could show his mom and that she would be proud of him. And then in a misguided attempt to win favor with his mother, Gabriel stole his teacher's iPod and tried to give it to Pearl as a gift. This got him in a lot of trouble and to punish Gabriel, Pearl forced him to go to school the following day wearing a pink miniskirt and polka-dotted leggings. He arrived in class with his head hung in shame. Later that day, someone had given him a large t-shirt to wear over the clothing that his mother had dressed him in. As Gabriel continued to attend school sporadically, as Jennifer continued to see signs that he was being severely mistreated, Jennifer had come to the conclusion that the DCFS was never going to do anything to help. She probably had no idea that his case had been closed for a while by then. Jennifer tried to reach out to a psychologist who worked in conjunction with the school to try and see if she could get Gabriel some counseling but she was told that it was beyond the scope of their services. And with that, Jennifer was given an informational brochure with steps on coping with a child's behavioral issues. Jennifer, frustrated and in disbelief, tossed the brochure into the garbage. Towards the end of April of 2013, Gabriel's appearance was worse than ever. The blood vessels in his eyes were bloodshot, The skin on his forehead was peeling. He had injuries all over his face and neck. Jennifer just didn't have it in her anymore to ask. Instead, she asked him if he wanted to make a special gift for Mother's Day for his mom. Of course he did. And he worked so hard on this project, Dreamers. I've described his Mother's Day project. You can see pictures of it all over the internet. It was such a sweet and loving gesture on his part. It was really heartfelt. This woman, his mom, she did not deserve this child. I swear she did not deserve him or his love for her. Jennifer called Stephanie again to report the new injuries, but she got no answer. She left a message, but got no call back. This call was never recorded in Gabriel's case file with the DCFS, And that's because Stephanie had passed his case on to family preservation, and family preservation closed the case almost two months earlier. A couple more days passed. Gabriel approached his teacher and told her that he was having some pain in his eye. She went ahead and sent him to see the nurse, a woman named Donna Evans. She had just started at the school. When she saw Gabriel, he explained that he injured his eye by falling off his bike but he said he was okay. And then he pleaded with her to not contact his mom, to please do not send him home early from school. There wasn't much more the nurse could do. It wasn't her place to make assessments about his injury to his eye, nor was it within her capacity to call for Gabriel to be seen by a doctor. That would be up to Pearl. But in her notes about Gabriel's visit to her office, She made sure she included as many details as she could about his visit because she thought it was likely that the school might hear from Child Protective Services about it. And then, ignoring Gabriel's pleas to not contact his mom, the nurse did exactly that and requested that she come down to the school. Gabriel was being sent home early for the day. As he sat in the attendance office awaiting his fate, One of the ladies who worked in there, a woman named Pamela Howell, told the nurse that contacting Pearl to come and get Gabriel was a huge mistake. She was very well aware of the danger that Gabriel was in at home. She knew that he was in for it. Nearly the entire school administration knew it. By the end of April, according to Gabriel's brother and sister who lived with him in the home, Gabriel was being kept locked inside that cabinet every single day and every single night, pretty much constantly. His brother Ezekiel tried to sneak him food through the gap in the cabinet doors that were being held shut by a padlock. Ezekiel also reported that Pearl and Asario forced him to beat Gabriel too, and if he refused to comply he would be beaten. One of the ways of trying to get around this was to quietly instruct Gabriel to collapse to the floor as soon as he took a swing at him so he wouldn't have to hit him anymore. On Wednesday, May 22nd, 2013, Gabriel would receive the last beating that he would ever have to endure. Armed with their BB gun, pepper spray, wire coat hangers, and a baseball bat, Pearl Fernandez and Asario Aguirre launched their horrific attack on Gabriel's little body. When they were finished, Pearl instructed Gabriel's sister, Virginia, who had been in her room paralyzed with fear as her mother and her mother's boyfriend beat the life out of her brother. She was summoned to help clean up Gabriel's blood. Eventually, these two pieces of human garbage realized that they had gone too far and ended up calling 911. They said that Gabriel did not appear to be breathing, they could not feel a heartbeat, and that he had come to be in this state because he had been horsing around with his brother and somehow injured his head. Paramedics arrived and it would be Gabriel's brother who showed them the way in. With the paramedics, first responders, and emergency room staff would eventually come to discover when attempting to save Gabriel's life are things that I just cannot bear to speak of. Gabriel was in a coma from which he would never awaken. The following day, Jennifer was summoned to her principal's office to break the news to her about Gabriel. The initial thought was that he was dead, but they soon learned that he had been admitted to Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. So that gave Jennifer a glimmer of hope that he would pull out of this. She contacted the hospital to see if she could come see him, to be with him because she was sure that he was there by himself, with no one else around to talk to him or comfort him. But she was unable to get any information from the hospital staff. She wanted to finally be able to tell him that he was going to be okay. It was a thing that she had been longing to want to tell him when she resorted to assuring him that he would someday be 18 and free. What Jennifer didn't know was that Gabriel had already been declared brain dead when she phoned the hospital. Gabriel Fernandez was removed from life support two days after the final beating on May twenty fourth, 2013. Jennifer still had Gabriel's Mother's Day card that he had put all of his love and poured his little heart and soul into. She got herself as prepared as she could to tell Gabriel's classmates the awful news. She could not hold back her tears as she tried to explain that Gabriel's mom had hurt him and that he was gone. She told the reporter with The Atlantic that the look on their faces spoke to the horror that they felt in hearing what she was trying to tell them. They could not come to grips with the fact that his mother did this to him. His mom did it. His mom heard him. They just didn't get it. In the fall of 2017, Asario Aguirre stood trial for Gabriel's murder. Both of Gabriel's siblings, his brother Ezekiel, who was then 16, And Sister Virginia, who was then 14, took the stand to speak for their brother, to be his voice, as they came face-to-face with the man who, along with their mother, beat Gabriel to death four and a half years earlier. It took jurors about five hours of deliberations to reach a unanimous guilty verdict, and in the penalty phase, they again were unanimous in recommending the death penalty, which is what Asaro was sentenced to. Today, Asaro Aguirre is 39 years old and currently housed on California's death row at San Quentin State Prison. I don't know if he'll ever be put to death by the state of California, but we can be rest assured that he will die behind prison walls. The day after her former boyfriend was found guilty and the jury recommended the death penalty, attorneys representing Pearl scrambled to try and get a deal in place for where she could avoid being sentenced to death herself. She would accept a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole and without the option to appeal if the prosecutor would drop the death penalty. Pearl's children, who had by then moved out of state with a relative, asked the prosecutor to take her plea deal. They did not want to come back to court to testify against their mother. And so it was accepted. Today, Pearl Fernandez is 36 years old and is currently housed at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California, and she, too, will die in prison. Greg Merritt, Stephanie Rodriguez, Kevin Baum, and Patricia Clement were criminally charged in the spring of 2016, some three years after Gabriel's death. In that time, their cases had been under review to see if there was enough to bring about indictments. By then, all four of them had been fired from the DCFS and thought that their roles in Gabriel Fernandez's case was long forgotten. But people weren't so quick to forget. These four individuals were maligned in the community, and none of them were faring very well in the wake of Gabriel's murder. Patricia Clement, unable to recover financially from losing her job, was forced into bankruptcy. Stephanie Rodriguez had moved out of the area, but it was impossible for her to evade her association with Gabriel's case. Her image had been plastered all over the media and news outlets. Everyone knew who she was, and everyone hated her. Kevin was able to put his master's from USC to use, finding work as a child custody assessor in divorce proceedings, but he was fired when he was charged in Gabriel's death. Last anyone heard... Kevin Baum was working as a gardener. As for Greg Merritt, he has not been able to find steady work. And as of late 2018, he occasionally stocks beers at the fairgrounds located in the Antelope Valley. His faith, he says, has kept him from completely losing it. And as I said earlier, the criminal case against the four of them seemed to be moving forward, but the charges against them were tossed out earlier this year through an appeal. Since Gabriel's death, the DCFS has initiated a number of improvements. Upwards of at least 1,000 new caseworkers were hired on. Every person at every level of the Department of Children and Family Services has been issued a smartphone, which they had never been given prior to Gabriel's murder. New training and instruction techniques have been introduced, and the standards for a family to be accepted into the voluntary family maintenance program have been overhauled and tightened but it is not a perfect system. Since Gabriel died all the way up until the end of 2018, at least another 143 children in Los Angeles County were killed as a result of abuse, neglect, or both after having some interaction with the Department of Children and Family Services. But nowadays, in the Palmdale DCFS office, Gabriel Fernandez has faded from memory. Maybe not so much now since the documentary on Netflix, but prior to that, because of all the turnover, it really isn't anything anyone really talks about or ever really cares to. To most, it's the past. They can only worry about the cases piled up on their desks today. And that will bring this 142nd episode of California Dreaming to a close. Please come over to our Facebook discussion group if you haven't done so yet and request to join. It is there we discuss all the cases that we cover. We share some of our thoughts and opinions. And it's not only about this show, but any other podcast that you listen to. Documentaries that we've watched, books that you've read, as well as current news stories. We also post about our pets. We post funny memes. Please come and share. You can also go over to the show's Facebook page, like that page and leave a review or a recommendation. And you can follow us on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And I would like to wish the following dreamers a very happy birthday. Lauren B., Virginia and Aaron S. on April 1st, Michelle C. on April 3rd, John B. on the 4th, Caitlin P. on the 5th, David S., Mr. California Dreaming, and Todd M. on the 6th, the host of True Crime Finland on the 7th, Sherry R. and Brent A. on the 8th. California Dreaming is brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network, a podcast production company on a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, with an eclectic roster of shows, with content including true crime, history, sports entertainment, gaming, and social media. So visit our website at www.orbitaljigsaw.com It is there you will find the links to all of our podcasts, as well as a direct link to our merchandise store on TeePublic. Again, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you again so much for listening. I'm your host, Roseanne. Until next time, sweet dreams.